Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. With each episode, our diverse and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention, together, to breathe, to reflect, and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice that we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. You are about to hear from the man who branded the Super Bowl, Jim Stieg, in his 26 seasons in charge of the NFL Special Events Department, specifically the Super Bowl, changed the whole dynamics of this event from a, a football game to a four-day extravaganza. And Stieg is considered to basically be the individual who grew the Super Bowl into what is today's probably the greatest one-day sporting event in the world. He handled everything. I am talking site selection, the stadium practice site preparation, the build-out, pregame, halftime shows, the national anthem performers, the, the fan accommodations, corporate hospitality, the broadcasting of the TV, telecom, transportation, security, logo design, decorations, signage. I mean, everything you can think of related to the Super Bowl ultimately fell under this man's purview. And get this, this is pretty amazing. He, when he first started, the Super Bowl did $5 million. That's what the event generated the first year. And when he was done, it produced over $250 million. So here to talk to us about Super Bowl branding, please welcome Jim Stieg. So Jim, what was it like in the early days? Could you speak to that for us just a little bit? Well, I, I first, I, first Super Bowl, I went to Super Bowl 10 when I had just started to work for the Dolphins and I sat in the corner of the end zone in the upper deck. And it, it was, you know, it was the, the biggest game in professional football at that point in time. It probably wasn't even as big as things that we had in Miami, you know, the Orange Bowl or the Rose Bowl or things like that. It was a, it was a football game that was isolated. It was a championship game. There were some things that were added to it. You know, little the halftime shows were there. We were probably competing with the halftime show, trying to get as good as the Orange Bowl halftime show in those days. But it was all about, you know, the game. So the focus was on making sure it was the best possible experience. Now, it was the intent and the planning of Pete Rosell, you know, then the commissioner and the one who was involved, certainly when it started back in 1967, that he wanted it to make it something that was kind of melded the entertainment business together with the sports business. So we spent a lot of times in the first 13 years going back and forth between Miami and Los Angeles. Miami, you could say, is New York South. Los Angeles is Los Angeles. So, you know, whether it's the thinking of the Jackie Gleason show or whatever you had in LA. And so it was a lot of us, but it was a football game and you were trying to make it the biggest football game that was. It really developed from them through a variety. I'd like to say they were all well, well thought out measured plans. The thing that made the game so great and, and part of what changed it was going from Miami to Los Angeles, New Orleans thrown in there. You were in the same places. And once we started going to Tampa and Detroit and San Diego and, you know, Houston and run down the list, each one of those brought something new to the equation that you could make the game even better and grow the game. And that's that's part of what it was all about. So what did you do with that vision? What was what were some of like the initial steps that you took? 
Well, like I say, some of them are by chance and some of them were, were thought out. But I think the first big change we had from an entertainment standpoint was when we went to Detroit and we talked about the national anthem the previous year been sung by Helen O'Connell. I'm sure it's on your hit parade. I'm not sure how many people remember Helen O'Connell. I went to Pete and we said, well, you know, we're going to Detroit. Let's, let's step it up a little bit. Let's try something. We, there's only one person that could sing the anthem of Detroit and it was Diana Ross. Mm. And his response to me was, yeah, go ahead, kid, give it a shot. <laughs> he got no chance. Went and called on her and absolutely she did it. You know, that evolved the anthem now from being, okay, just somebody to now all of a sudden being a star, uh, you know, a, a celebrity of major note that's out there, you know, the Billy Joels and Barry Manilow's and, you know, run down the list of those people that were chart toppers. But I mean, I think that that shows the, the change in how that took place. Then our pregame shows had been, we left the halftime show to be entertainment. The pregame shows were kind of about the local community, but had we put bands in those, the, the local marching band, you know, when we were in Tampa in 84, we had Florida and Florida State bands get together for the first time. Well, we end up in 85, we're at Stanford. And the one thing we knew we couldn't do is have the Stanford band be involved in the game. Then if we went across the street and got Cal, that would be heresy. So we created a, halftime, a pregame show out of that. And then the halftime show evolved because they weren't our partners at the time, but Fox ambushed us in 1992 with a show they called In Living Color which went live during the halftime show and went right opposite us trying to steal part of that audience. And we sat down the next year saying, well, we can't let this happen again. And so we went after what we thought was the biggest name entertainment at the time, which was Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning of the change in the halftime show. So some of it happens by chance. Some of it happens by being well thought out uh, there to try to bring all that together. And then we become a, a destination that everybody feels that they've got to be because it's now a three or four day stay that people come down. I, I can't tell you the number of people that go to the Super Bowl and don't go to the game. Basically, you found a way to raise the profile. You 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 brought in these people. So when you when you're approaching like Michael Jackson and Diana Ross, did you have the money for that? Because that's before the Super Bowl was what it is now. No, they did it for free. We we paid wow. their production costs or things like that. But the major thing we got across to them and, and it bred upon itself was you start talking about the exposure. I mean, you know, Sandy Gallon, who was Michael Jackson's manager, couldn't tell you if a football was pumped or stuff, you know? Uh -huh. No idea what we were talking about. And so you go there and, and that, you get this false sense when you're dealing with the, the Super Bowl and the NFL is that everybody knows about the Super Bowl and everybody knows about the NFL. And then you find out that there are a number of people that don't know. And that was the case we had with Sandy Gown and with Michael Jackson. They didn't know what it was. So like any kind of business approach, you're selling yourself with something. And you go in and you make a presentation and say, let me tell you what this is. Let me tell you what the TV ratings are. Let me tell you what the type of crowd it is. Let me tell you who's in the crowd. Let me tell you what this is going to be broadcast you know, internationally. And really, in the case of Michael, that was the thing that made it work was when we told them, well, this is going to be broadcast in 180 different countries live. And you could see his eyes right up and say, you mean this is going to be broadcast in places I'll never give a concert? And we went, absolutely. And, and that was kind of the thing that mm. put it over the edge with him. But it's like all those things, all these people that you're talking to to get them involved. And I saw this so many times with entertainers that they just think, you know, I've, I've played stadiums, you know, I've played whatever it is. Uh, this is nothing. 
and you get them, you get them out there and they get in the middle of the field and they start doing it go, this is a little bit different than what I've ever done before. I think now the way it's evolved, people want to be a part of it because they, they realize that that is a very, very special moment in their careers. You know, I, I look at McCartney as an example, you know, the, the no bigger star probably than there is. Him wanting to be involved in the Super Bowl, him wanting to do the halftime show because he knew, A, it was something that hadn't been done in his career, but he wanted the experience of it. But even a guy like that comes out there and he's got a little bit of the jitters as he's getting ready to go out. One of the things that made the Super Bowl stand out in a lot of ways was where it sat in the calendar year. It fit perfectly into the kind of the corporate environment. Uh, it was at the end of the calendar year or it was the end of the fourth quarter mm. or whatever that was. So it gave the perfect opportunity for the incentive type programs, you know, best salesman for Ford Motor Company gets to go to the Super Bowl. And, you know, they used to bring back in the 1970s, early 1980s, they bring 1700, you know, dealers in, you know, and we sold that number of tickets or Chrysler bought 700, in, that type of thing. And, and so it became a, a corporate happening where people were at that got rewarded. They were the best of their company. They were coming and being part of it. And then we started to really cultivate the corporate community. We, I won't say we were the first, but we were darn close to it to really start the idea of having the corporate hospitality village outside the stadium mm. where on game day, you're not just coming in for a four-hour experience in a game, but you're there for the three hours before and an hour after. So now it's an eight-hour experience, and they're doing their own entertaining in that. Name entertainers or name celebrities in there that are part of that. So they brought things to the game that we didn't necessarily have to bring. Now, we had our own tailgate party, which sounded like a nice little thing, but it was an intimate affair for about eight, ten thousand 10,000 people but it still left six sevenths of the crowd on the outside looking in. So I think that there was, you tried to do with a lot of these things. And part of our plan was to get other people to bring things to us that we didn't have the wherewithal or the money or the, to be able to pull off initially. So uh, we had a golf tournament that was sponsored by Warner Lambert forever and ever. And then after a while we took it over. They had set the seeds and they didn't want to do it for one year. And then we took it over. And then it became something that's generating, you know, a ton of money off of that. Or the Taste of the NFL, which is an event that was originally put on through the host committee in Minnesota and now has been held for 25 years at the Super Bowl, you know, and has generated probably a million dollars a year for feeding the homeless. But it also created its own event, brought in its own celebrities, you know, that type of thing. So, you're really trying to get them to feel like they're part of it and you, you let them, you sanction them for a better word, which in the way we did it, that, that you still had to abide by not ambushing our sponsors, but it grew the event and they grew, they helped grow it also. So mm -hmm. how does the Super Bowl make money and what were the different revenue streams that you developed? Well, I think the revenues, they're, they're very diverse. They're simple at the beginning. First of all, it's ticket sales. You know, I hate to say ticket prices in 79 were 20, 20 bucks a ticket. A little bit different. Your control, we, we took control over those things that we thought we helped generate around the stadium. You know, the concessions, the merchandise, the parking, things like that, that we could drive revenue, not just by us taking control over them, but making the product line better. So if you're dealing with, you know, an Aramark or a center plate or 
whoever that's doing your concessions, they're bringing in the best of their people and their business that they've got to do. So you develop products that you're going to have that may be higher price, but they're also higher quality. You know, from a merchandise standpoint, it's not just selling like it was 30 years ago, you know, pennants and hats and t-shirts, right? Now you're really trying to develop product lines, things you can take on consignment that are $150, you know, satin jackets or, or something like that. And, you know, you look back to the whole product line, for example, of winner's merchandise started with something we did at the Super Bowl in Tampa in 84. Nobody had ever done winner's merchandise. Now, I, now you can't get away from any championship without them throwing a hat on somebody. So trying to develop that, trying to make also the experience better. So we, we did a lot of things for the fans that were coming that would get them voluntarily spend money rather than pulling out of their pocket. So at the concession stands, and I know this is hard to think of these days, but you put bound and television sets in the concession stand. So when they got up to go to the concession stand, mm. it's not. You don't uh, miss the game. Yeah. Yeah. I know what the war is now. Or you did that. You put sound in the bathrooms. You know, there's nothing worse than the side. You got to go to the bathroom and you're in the war going, oh, my God, what just happened. I think that those things were trying to get it out. Of. A television, obviously, is part of that. But I guess going back to merchandise. The product line also changed from what you could do and where you could sell it. It wasn't just something that was at the game or it's the fact that you're throwing a Super Bowl party and you, you're not just worried about getting the guacamole and the chips, but can you get the Super Bowl napkins or the, you know, whatever it is to do that party. So you really try to think about how people do it. Like I said, television was important. And obviously the way each one of the networks take over, I mean, we joked when Fox first took over, we thought that the pregame show probably started in September. You got a five or six hour pregame show. The advertising rates had gone crazy since that. Well, I guess Apple was the first company to ever do a commercial solely designed for the Super Bowl way back in 1984. So, I mean, now everybody uses that to unveil their new commercials. Now you've even got companies that it's 100% are advertising. So, television was part of this, you know, merchandising, concessions, tickets, making experiences. We, we did, um, we decided that we didn't want to look greedy. That was really important to us that people would always think of the NFL and always do think of the NFL is chasing the almighty buck. I'm not saying that we don't, but we took the NFL experience, which was our a creation. Unfortunately, it came out of a harebrained idea I had because I was, I'm a, I collect baseball and football cards. And when that was hit its craze in the late eighties, early nineties, I decided, well, let's do a card show at the Super Bowl. And they thought, well, why would you do that? And I said, well, who's going what more people you got to let out with disposable money than that? The people that are going there and who would buy a 52 nano card than somebody that would show out cash and was at the Super Bowl, that type of stuff. So uh, we did that. I mean, we did it the first time in New Orleans and had 40,000 people go. That was more than the national card show did. So the next year we said, well, let's expand upon this. Why don't we create an experience that all, you know, can take care of people on game day, give them something to do. If they're not going to one of the corporate parties or the NFL tailgate parties, let's create something around that. But let's kind of create a, an experience for them. And we called it NFL Town Square at the time. And it was, it was designed like a shopping mall. You know, it had a movie theater in the middle, obviously NFL films stuff. One end was a merchandise store. The other end was the card show filled in everything in between with all the knickknack type stuff going on. And we, we, our budget for the thing was like $275,000. And we drew 73,000 people to it. 
And the next year we rebranded it, the NFL experience. And at that point in time, it's become a staple by every event. I think that's out there. I, I'm not even sure you can go to a regular baseball game, a football game without having something. It's a fan experience element to it. You certainly can't go to the final four or those type of events NBA all-star game and NHL all-star game that, without that being there. It's fascinating. You guys were so far ahead of your time. Well, thank you. I, I mean, I think the key to always look at this is two parts of this is, well, three parts. The people that are coming to the game are coming to the game. You want to give them, and probably 80% of the people that are coming to the game, it's a once-in-a-lifetime moment. And so you want them to walk away. I, you know, as Roselle used to say, I can't guarantee you that this game is going to be 20-19 decided by a last-minute missed field goal. In all likelihood, there'll be some games that are 55 to 9. It really made me think of how do you make sure you do that for everybody coming there? And what they see out of their prism is probably different than what somebody else sees out of their prism. The goal is, was to get three people sitting in coach on the way back from the game. And one of them said, oh, I was the greatest experience I had. I sat on the 50 yard line and I saw blah, 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 blah. And the judge, what, what the hell are you talking about? That was a great experience I had. You know, I got to go to this over here. I went to this event. I went uh-huh. to that event. I sat in the corner of the end zone. The other guy says, what, what are you talking about? I sat at the bar, you know, at the Fountain Blue Hotel and watched the game with you know, a whole bunch of people. That was the greatest experience of my life. So you, you don't know what it is that colors anybody's experience. And what you want is when they leave to be able to talk about it. And I think the other part that really is important is you, you come into a community and you are the one of the biggest businesses in that community for that year. And you need to do everything that you have to do there. And the NFL experience gave us that opportunity. You know, now it draws 200,000 people to it, to the event. I mean, it's crazy. It's obviously more than what you've got coming into town. So it's a chance for all the local people to experience and touch the Super Bowl if they can't go to the game. And that's going to be their memory of what's going to come with. So Mm -hmm. I think all those things are part of what's there. And then, and then, you talked about the charitable side of it. That was really a key to it. We took the gate proceeds from the NFL experience and said, okay, we're going to pay for this with sponsorship. Everything going to gate is going to go back into a charity. And what we did was we established a thing called NFL Youth Education Town, which was a basically we build a bricks and mortar place in every city uh, for kids to have as a, an adjunct, you know, for recreation and also education. So you're really trying to make the feel and the reach of this thing so much more than just you know, the one guy sitting at the 50 yard line, right. Um, it's gotta be some kid that's never going to get to go to the game, but you know, he got to go to the NFL experience and there was Troy Aikman signing an autograph before him, something he'll always remember. Or it's a youth clinic being held where, uh, you know, Warren Moe is teaching him how to throw a football, you know, that type of stuff. So mm-hmm. it's really trying to, I mean, you talked about it, it's extending the brand. And I think the one thing I, I learned is that, you don't have to pull money out of people. You often get it given to you if you do the right thing. I mean, it's mm-hmm. amazing how sponsors come to you want to sponsor things if they see it being done in the right way. Right. That's amazing. Well, Jim, it's, it's, well, it's, it's such a cool and nostalgic experience to just hear from you just telling the stories. I have a passion for this, obviously. I've, I lived it. <laughs> there's, no way, there's no way you can get away from it. I used to try to hide it when my kids were growing up. They, they always in the town was, well, there's somebody here that works for the NFL in our town. You know, I go, I wonder who that guy is. Because they would ask you for tickets or something. It, it was part of my life, and, and I'm, I'm very proud. And I'm very proud of all the people that worked with us on it. And there's so many, you know, literally at the end of the day, the thing that's amazing is 
you probably have, you may have as many as 10,000 people reporting to you in some way, shape or form. So it's a, it's a massive undertaking, but uh, it's a heck of a model for business. It's got everything you ever think you've got in the business and then some. Yeah, it has been an extraordinary experience to so many of us around the world. So we, we really appreciate you and, and we wish you all the best. Well, somebody asked me what my goal in life was is create memories for people. And hopefully mm-hmm. we did that. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. And to stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and on Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. And thanks for listening. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up the top trending articles on the web on topics you choose at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. The entire web becomes listenable for the first time all in one place. Browse articles from topics you choose and start playing, stop scrolling, and start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you like from sports, tech, business, science, Bitcoin, or even the Kardashian. It'll find you the latest article and read them to you aloud. They have podcasts as well. Explore trending podcasts from over 80 countries. Our podcast is on there too. They even have digital radio. Download and use Newsly for free at Newsly, N-E-W-S-L-Y dot M-E, or from the link in the description. Use promo code CATALYST and receive one month free premium subscription.